Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. I've disagreed with patients before. I've struggled with unrealistic expectations for aggressive ICU care and seen plenty of patients ignore the advice I've given them for weight loss or smoking. But I've never seen a play out so painfully in front of me or felt so helpless to stop it. She was in her mid-30s, among the youngest I've seen with metastatic breast cancer. Even so, she had reasons to be hopeful. Survival for her disease has never been better, at least five years with the latest combinations of treatments, and probably more. But she wouldn't let us talk about those treatments, and it wasn't her first time hearing about them. She'd been offered them seven months ago, but she chose instead to seek treatment in Mexico, where she could get IV vitamin C and instructions on a diet that would starve her cancer. And despite the growing back pain and the leg weakness, she continued down that road. When she could finally no longer walk, her parents literally dragged her into the hospital. I met her there to discuss the obvious. Metastatic cancer had eaten away at her spine, and the inevitable fractures now compromised her spinal cord. She took this all in with absolute clarity, and just as calmly asked me when she could leave. She didn't want surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, or even simple hormonal-based treatments. Despite what she was living through, the pain and debility right in front of her, she saw a better way out than what we in conventional Western medicine had to offer. This was one extreme example of something I came to see over and over again. The patient's quest for outside cures, for new or different answers to the problems we as doctors were describing to them. What were we doing wrong that led so many people astray? Or on the other side, how did these alternative medicine folks win the trust that we had lost? I'm Joffer. I'm Tamar. And I'm Margot. Welcome back to At the Bedside. So that case left me with a lot of questions and concerns about this big mysterious world of complementary and alternative medicine, or CAM. And it was more than just wanting to know a little bit more about the evidence behind acupuncture or nutraceuticals. I felt like I needed to know why this young woman would fully commit herself to CAM treatments. And yeah, definitely, her case was extreme. But diving deeper into it taught me all about the ways that so many people choose to pursue their health beyond what traditional Western allopathic medicine offers. Not just what they practice, but why they practice it, and where I, as their doctor, sit within that journey. We'll start off today by discussing definitions of CAM and its overall prevalence. Then we'll go into some of the reasons why so many patients find it so appealing. We'll finish by discussing how we can use these insights to improve our practice, and what CAM practices we should be aware of in assessing risks and benefits. Ultimately, confronting CAM practices pushes us to understand what we in the Western tradition really believe about health, where those limits can grow, but also where those limits need to be enforced. With us to discuss these issues are three physician experts on CAM, 
each with their own story to tell, living at the intersection between allopathic medicine and the frontiers of different camp practices. First, meet Dr. Edzard Ernst, Professor Emeritus of Complementary Medicine at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. When I had graduated, by coincidence, I ended up in the only homeopathic hospital in Germany at the time. I'd learned that this is all rubbish, but patients did get better, and I started thinking maybe not everything was true that I had learned at medical school. Dr. Ernst is perhaps the world's foremost CAM researcher, having written over a thousand peer-reviewed articles, 100 book chapters, and over 50 books, and still currently maintains a daily blog critically reviewing issues in CAM. Also with us is Dr. Ashini Master, Assistant Professor of Hematology-Oncology at UCLA, who's board certified in integrative medicine. It's really more of how I approach medicine, which really goes back to how I was raised. I do recall seeing a pediatrician regularly, but I also recall seeing a homeopath regularly and seeing sort of non-traditional practitioners fairly regularly just having that understanding and that exposure at a very young age that there is more than just Western medicine. Finally, we're joined with Dr. Kaket Hui, Wallace Annenberg Professor of Integrative Medicine at UCLA and Director of the UCLA Center of East-West Medicine. So my first 20-some years at UCLA was to try to integrate Western medicine. And I've been a bench researcher, I've been a drug developer, and I have been trying to figure out like what what is good about the medicine that well, we have with the biomedical approach, and then what are the healing traditions, particularly Chinese medicine. So what is CAM? CAM is a catch-all term for healing practices that you don't tend to get through a doctor's office. It's generally split into five categories. First, there are alternative whole medical systems. This includes homeopathic and naturopathic medicine, as well as Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine. Second are mind-body interventions, which is meditation, yoga, and tai chi. Third are manipulative and body-based methods, which includes massage, acupuncture, and chiropractic manipulation. Fourth are energy therapies, like qigong and reiki. Finally, there are biologically-based therapies, and these are compounds found in nature like herbs, foods like turmeric, vitamins, and dietary supplements. Dr. Ernst explains how these can be powerful substances unto themselves. Quite a few herbal remedies which are effective for certain conditions, which is hardly surprising if we consider that about half of our pharmacopoeia, modern pharmacopoeia, originated from the plant kingdom. As you can probably tell from that description, the practices we lump under the term CAM are incredibly heterogeneous, each coming with its own risk profile and cultural background. Different practices appeal to different people for different reasons. And definitions can also be tough to pin down because some practices that were alternative are now being incorporated into mainstream medical practice. Many medical centers are now promoting practices like yoga, massage, and acupuncture. The themes we'll talk about today are pretty broad, so for the details on individual practices, we'll have a list of resources in the show notes. So some of us may consider camp practices outside our ideas of traditional medicine, or they're at least outside the bounds of what we learned in medical school. But we wanted to make the point that the prevalence of use alone makes a convincing argument for why we should be seeking out a better understanding of these practices, the evidence of their benefit, and their possible toxicities. So many of our patients may be engaging in complementary or alternative practices. 
Data from a survey done by the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics back in 2007 estimated that almost 4 out of 10 adults had used CAM therapy in the past 12 months. Now, this took into account nutritional supplements and breathing exercises, but still, that's a higher proportion than I'd recognized. And CAM use is even higher in certain subsets of patients, like those with chronic back pain, patients with cancer, and cancer survivors, which also explains why there's been an increasing trend in including exposure to CAM in medical curricula. 72 health systems and medical schools have programs in integrated medicine and health, and that doing research, doing teaching, and have clinical programs. Johns Hopkins, Harvard, and MD Anderson, and a lot of the national comprehensive centers actually have integrative oncology programs as well. So I, I think that we believe that integrative health should be part of everyone's health 101. So what attracts patients to start using CAM? Well, for many communities, these practices are ingrained healing traditions, used alongside and indeed long before Western medicine. I do think it's very cultural, and particularly if we're seeing people who are immigrants or first generation, I think there is a strong cultural component. This is the way it's done in, in my country, and so that might be driving them. And the other probably largest proportion of it, when we look at traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, these have been in practice for centuries, much longer than Western allopathic medicine has been. As Margot mentioned earlier, some people practice CAM not just as individual modalities, but whole medical systems, where every part of a person's health can be appreciated and addressed together in ways that modern medicine often compartmentalizes into different subspecialties. The claim that alternative practitioners practice holistic medicine and by implication that mainstream medicine is reductionistic and ne neglecting the whole person, just treating diagnostic labels rather than whole people. Sadly, this is perhaps sometimes true. Those needs, unfortunately, may have more to do with the broader structures of conventional medicine, where both patients and clinicians feel the frustration of limited time together. I don't know any doctor who wouldn't like to have more time with patients, but patients don't know that. The truth of it is, the way our medical system is set up, we really don't have the time to do it. Because it does. It takes time. It takes sitting with a patient. It takes listening to them, really teasing out what their priorities are, what their background is, where they're coming from, what their relationship with the medical system is. And it's not just that camp practitioners offer their time. They also offer philosophies of care that are similarly holistic, comprehensive, and easy to understand. Multiple large surveys of patients have shown that it is not so much that patients embrace CAM practices because they reject conventional medicine. It's because these other modalities are more culturally and philosophically aligned with them. The way we're taught in medicine, we're taught to prevent and treat specific diseases. CAM and integrative medicine are really what fills in the gaps between diseases with compelling philosophies of the whole system. In general, Western medicine used the reductionistic approach. We try to sort of look at a symptom and trace it to an organ, to a tissue, to a molecule. When we try to treat by either removing it, replacing it, we try to do it by blocking and stimulating. We do not do enough on modulating and trying to understand why the, the balance is off. I, I think that the reductionistic approach is useful when we deal with something that's acute. Okay, but when you try to focus on prevention, 
when you focus on things that are just like either very early or when things are very advanced and there's so many factors, multifactorial issues that we become relatively impotent. Even more than just giving us deeper concepts of health and illness, what many CAM modalities also offer is a chance at more active engagement in the healing process itself, something sorely missed by those who may feel lost and existentially distressed by the process of illness. They've lost all sense of control going through the process, and they're just looking for something they can hold on to to feel like I'm doing something for myself. They're like, I've done everything right. I exercise six hours a week and I'm vegan and I'm all of these things. Why did this happen to me? Western medicine doesn't have an answer. And maybe in seeking some other alternative therapies, I will, maybe they will have an answer for me. This quest for answers and empowerment may be why K-modalities are more often sought by patients who are more highly educated, patients who are under increased psychosocial distress, or who are given diagnoses with a poor prognosis. Patients can get especially motivated to look for alternatives when they feel that their health is at risk by undergoing conventional treatment, a feeling I've seen come up a lot with chemotherapy. We refer to this therapy as cytotoxic. You say that word to a patient and their immediate retort is me, why do you want to give me something that is toxic to me? Well, I want to give it to you because I know it can potentially cure your cancer, but that can be a difficult hurdle to overcome. The problem gets even worse when we're faced with chronic diseases that are poorly understood or lack effective treatments. Many studies have shown increased usage of CAM amongst patients with chronic back pain, chronic neurologic, psychiatric, rheumatologic, and GI issues, asthma, or gynecological disorders. If we're being honest with ourselves, not all of our treatments really work that well. I think of what a patient with uncontrolled fibromyalgia must go through, and to me that kind of justifies looking outside of what conventional medicine offers. So, so there's a lot of disappointment with conventional medicine, and some of it is justified, not all of it. And with this disappointment, people look elsewhere. Essentially, what some patients are looking for is hope beyond what conventional medicine has offered them. And so it's no wonder that the Segus patients often appeal to CAM therapies for hope. Somebody who is fighting for his or her life would be clinging to any straw that offers stability or help in, in any sort of way. And as you well know, you go on the internet and, for instance, cancer patients get promised all sorts of things about alternative medicine, that it cures their condition or that it helps with coping or side effects, improving quality of life, etc., etc. So all of this is, of course, very, very attractive to anybody who is desperate. Even one of our clinician guests spoke about her experience looking to outside sources because of feelings of desperation. I get it. I was hardly ill with hyperemesis both my pregnancies. I was doing the same thing. I did not feel supported by my obstetrician the way I'd hoped for. It was one of those, it's okay, this medication doesn't work, we'll use this one and this one. Well, all of the medications were having their own set of side effects. So I was trying to find something else I could do to work and my second pregnancy, take care of a toddler. So you look for things, you get to a point of desperation and I completely understand it having been through my own experience. We're going to turn now to the main reason we wanted to dedicate an episode to this topic. How does all this information affect our practice? How do we integrate it into our clinical approach? 
I personally believe that there is a role for both of them using our science and our data and our randomized clinical trials to provide the best therapies for patients that ultimately there's a lot that we don't know about the human body and self-healing capacity that it has that I think that we can support with other modalities. And this was the first thing we heard from our experts over and over again. The importance of humility, curiosity, and being open-minded about a place for CAM practices and the impact they have on our patients. We think that we have the only know-how for healthcare, when in fact there are other cultural healing traditions that actually can be very helpful as well. That would complement, that's why we call complementary medicine, that would complement our current approach. How do you care for the patient? How do you motivate a patient to be a partner in the overall journey of their recovery? And with that in mind, we need to really understand our patients' experiences with CAM, why they chose certain modalities, what worked for them, and what didn't, so that we can better understand what they need from us in their medical care. I think a lot of people are looking for a sense of control and a sense of purpose in their treatment plan. And I think we can provide that for people if we really partner them and we partner with them and have an open discussion about what their belief system is and how we can help support that and integrate it into their treatment plan. I think that there is a level of trust that I have been successful in creating with my patients because from the start, we do have an open dialogue about their desire to engage in complementary therapies. And because we've had that, they know that I will listen to them and engage them in that conversation. So if I think it is something that will be harmful to them or that is unnecessary, for the most part, I find that they will respect my opinion. But I think ultimately that stems from the fact that we have laid the foundation early on for this relationship in this open dialogue, instead of me saying to them, just, I don't believe in these things, or these things have never been proven, so I don't think that you should do them. Because then patients feel, they feel written off, and they don't feel that they're being heard. So it's important for the general internist or family medicine physician to try to integrate all the, the guidelines and try to come up with what is best for that person. And to make an integrated plan, we also need to be open-minded about the limitations of our knowledge and learn more about the science and evidence behind CAM practices we may not be so familiar with in order to properly counsel our patients. Obviously, one needs to take patients seriously with their concerns, and one needs to advise them responsibly. Responsible advice can only be advice based on good evidence. And so again, we encourage you to check out some of the resources in our show notes, which we gathered with the guidance of our expert discussants. As a place to start, there are great point-of-care references, such as Dr. Ernst's book published last year, titled Alternative Medicine, A Critical Assessment of 150 Modalities. Similarly, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center has a searchable database that includes the mechanisms of action and potential interactions of supplements, herbs, and other compounds. There are also hundreds of Cochrane systematic reviews on complementary therapies and great online learning modules for clinicians. As Tamar and Joffre have just discussed, there are lessons that Western medicine can take from CAM. But there are definitely times when CAM practices can be harmful, so where do you draw the line? I'm going to go over some strategies for weighing risks and benefits. First, we'll talk about supplements. 
Supplements are very commonly used, but can be really difficult to accurately assess risk for. Part of the problem is that supplements aren't regulated as closely as medications, so you don't really know what's in the pill your patient is taking. This also makes them really difficult to study in clinical trials, so the data that we have on supplements just aren't as rigorous. Here's a strategy that Dr. Master has used to advise her patients. I encourage them to add these things to their diet and to consume them in their natural form. We know that food works synergistically, so you're going to have a much greater benefit from probably a much smaller amount if you are cooking with it. And then you don't have to worry about the potential toxicity because it's unlikely you could ingest that much without having side effects from it if you're taking it in its natural form. It's also important to warn patients not to suddenly stop their supplements. If a medication interacts with the supplement, it can reach a steady state that could get disrupted. Another problem our experts touched on is the lack of oversight of the CAM practitioners themselves. While many CAM practitioners go through a formal path of education and certification, their practices don't tend to get the same degree of scrutiny as conventional medicine. It's important to warn your patient if they seem to be working with an unscrupulous CAM provider. I have patients who come in with pamphlets they've picked up from down the street from our clinic where they literally have a just a list, like a menu of options that patients can go through. Patients who are on chemotherapy can go through and they can kind of pick and choose which complementary therapies they want to use. So it, it almost feels like no one is guiding them. They are just going through and saying, yes, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want this ozone therapy. They're looking at the, you know, the prices are on there. It's like you're going into a salon and or getting your nails done and you're choosing out what color you want. And then there you go. So that is really distressing to me. On the other hand, there are many practices that pose little to no risk. Specifically, mind-body interventions, energy healing, and body-based methods don't tend to run into the same risks that our patients might face with infusions and unregulated supplements. The way I look at that, you know, when we talk about healing touch, when we talk about relaxation techniques, when we talk about prayer, energy therapies, I think there's very little downside to it. The chance of doing harm with any of those techniques is so low. I mean, we know that support groups provide benefit for patients. In the same vein, I think if you are doing some kind of relaxation therapy or healing touch, the way I look at that is that might be an hour of someone's time where they are focusing on themselves. But there is an important caveat. While most body-based manipulation is low risk, serious events do happen. Chiropractic manipulations have certain risks particularly if the chiropractor manipulates the neck. About 500 people have suffered stroke and many have died from dissection of the vertebral artery, which happens when certain manipulations are done by a chiropractor. So it's, it's by no means risk-free. Informed consent is virtually absent in alternative medicine. Given the low but real risk of carotid dissection, cauda equina, and disc herniation, Patients who are predisposed to these complications should be advised not to seek chiropractic manipulation. This includes patients with a history of stroke, osteoporosis, spinal instability, and people with bleeding disorders or who are on blood thinners. While we've covered some of the direct risks of CAM practices, some of the biggest risks might be indirect. And with the risk, I include what I often call indirect risks. Homeopaths, for instance, tell their patients not 
to use vaccinations. And the recommendation not to use vaccinations is a risk, uh, not just to that one kid that is being advised not to use vaccinations, but if it happens often enough to the public, we would lose herd immunity. If a CAM practitioner discourages their patient from seeking conventional medical care, that patient loses out on the treatments that we have to offer. I think the patient that Joffre told us about at the beginning of the episode is a particularly heartbreaking example of what can happen when patients turn to CAM and refuse conventional care. Another indirect risk is the impact that these treatments can have on a patient's finances. In 2012, a survey estimated that 59 million Americans used CAM, paying over $30 billion out of pocket in that year. Nearly $13 billion was spent on supplements, and almost $15 billion was spent on visits to complementary practitioners, including homeopaths, massage therapists, chiropractors, and chelation therapists. At the end of the day, it's worth weighing the risks and benefits in the context of the overall clinical picture. Dr. Master shares an example about a patient with advanced breast cancer. I had a surgeon call me today to ask me if lymphedema massage was a concern in a patient who had had over 40 lymph nodes that were positive when she went for her mastectomy, and if there was a risk of potentially seeding the tumor and resulting in metastatic disease. And, you know, I, I explained to her, in truth, we know that lymphatic massage is beneficial for women who have lymphedema. Unfortunately, in a patient with that sort of prognosis, if we really were to step back and look at the big picture, unfortunately, a woman that we know has micrometastatic disease and is likely to have macrometastatic disease at some point in time. So if we can really provide her with some relief and some improvement in her quality of life, I think that the risk or potential harm with doing lymphatic massage is, is negligible when we compare it to the potential benefit. When we're talking about any complementary therapy, I really look at, I try to look at the big picture. I try to look at, okay, now are we dealing in the metastatic setting where we need to really have a frank conversation with a patient about what are their priorities? Is it quantity or quality or both? And then what is the safety of the complementary intervention that we're doing? And if we're in the curative setting, maybe even more so, right? We don't want to do anything that may interfere with our potential for cure. But once we have completed all the standard therapies is really when I feel more comfortable with them pursuing. And it's all just open, open dialogue and them needing to feel heard, I think. This is a complicated case, one that is just as much about goals of care as it is about CAM. We wanted to include this to give you insight into how an oncologist might think about a certain patient's options, but not to make you feel like you have to make a decision like this alone. If you find yourself in a similar scenario, talk with the other physicians involved in the patient's care, which will help shed light on the patient's prognosis and therapeutic options. Like Tamar and Joffrey spoke about earlier, if you put some time in upfront to understand why your patient has turned to CAM, it'll help build a therapeutic alliance and make it easier to negotiate with your patient if they're engaging with a practice that you think is unsafe. But we do want to acknowledge that conversation and empathy won't work for every patient every time. It's, it can be very frustrating. And I think early on, earlier on in my career, I think I'm still early in my career, but earlier on in my career, I wanted to appease everyone. And then I realized that that's not necessarily in their best interest, but I found myself trying to compromise with them a lot. Six years into practicing now, I recognize 
you are coming to me for my expertise, for my knowledge, and I'm going to give that to you. And if you do not like that, certainly there will be a degree of discussion about what your concerns are and if there are, are alternative options. And if not, then I might not be the right oncologist for them or the right person for them. And we cannot expect that every patient who walks into our door is going to be someone who we have a good connection with. We're all human, right? And I have to sometimes go home and remind myself of that to not take it personally. Okay, so it's worth saying again, complementary and alternative medicine is a huge field, and it might be that there are as many different CAM communities and practices as there are people seeking them, each with their own motivations, philosophies, related risks, and clinical situations. And while the evidence base for many of these practices may be unfamiliar or still in development, at the end of the day, we can't simply ignore what our patients value. I think more and more, and as time goes on, we are going to see more patients utilizing CAM practices. And I think it is important for all clinicians to have some awareness and knowledge about at least the more commonly used ones so that we can appropriately guide our patients. So they're doing it safely and truthfully not getting taken advantage of. So while it might not be something that's high on our priority list, because we do have so many journals to read and so many things to get through, but I think it is something that our patients are prioritizing more, so it is incumbent upon us to prioritize it more as well. So to review what we covered today, we learned that CAM practices are widely prevalent, with estimates that 40% of patients are subscribing to some form of it, and that this is higher in some of the most vulnerable groups including patients with cancer, chronic illnesses, and poorer prognoses. Patients may gravitate to CAM for empowerment and hope, and also for cultural and philosophical reasons that show us the weaknesses in a reductionistic, subspecialized, and time-pressured healthcare system. We learned how humility, curiosity, and investing a little bit of time up front can pay dividends in creating the trust needed so that they can listen to us when those practices run astray. CAM practices are not all benign, particularly supplements and botanicals, and learning with patients about them not only helps us counsel about risks, but perhaps teaches us something important about our own practice. A final point I would make is be self-critical. If your patient goes off and sees an alternative practitioner, ask yourself, why is he doing that? Is it perhaps because he's not getting what he is wanting to get from you? Should you not be more compassionate should you not also have better explanations we just need to remember that we are doctors and we should be compassionate foremost and then scientists second Thanks for tuning in. We know these topics can stir up more questions than answers, and we look forward to hearing more about your experiences and thoughts about complementary and alternative medicine. Please continue the conversation with us online at our Facebook page, on Twitter, or email us directly. Find show notes and contact information for us on our website, www.coreimpodcast.com contact. If you enjoyed listening to our show and are looking to complement the experience, 
please give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. It helps other people find us. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve. And as always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Finally, a special thanks to all our collaborators in this episode, our wonderful editor, Julius Kubij, our illustrator, Michael Shen, endless technical support from Harit Shaw, moral and executive support from Shreya Trivedi, and most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.